All right. We have uh, Eric Anderson returning to grace this beautiful show again. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very well, Dr. Bog. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on your recent graduation. Thank you very much. It's been uh, it's been a journey and I've, I'm so blessed to have learned everything I've learned and to met the people I met. And I look forward to sharing the healing power of nature with, with people. So today we're talking about the things that interest us most, which are Eastern philosophy, yoga, the meaning of life, all these things that both of us love to talk about because where we actually met each other was in the uh, philosophy program at Stony Brook in New York. And we had a great teacher, uh, Nicholson, where we met each other. So would you uh, care to tell a little bit about that story of how you got into the Eastern philosophies and how we kind of clicked, that kind of thing? Yeah, so who knew that I would find you at the end of that uh, rainbow pot of gold there with <laughs> yoga and all that. Um, yeah, no, so I'm, I'm excited to talk about this because uh, it's such a beautiful story. So um, yes, yeah, Stony Brook University, all right. Um, luckily, we had an amazing professor there, Professor Andrew Nicholson. I will shamelessly uh, support him here and name drop him. He's fantastic. He's got some lectures online um, that you should go check out. Very, just like one of the wisest people uh, to know about Indian philosophy and, uh, you know, Indian politics as well. Just um, he he really opened, uh, you know, as as opened the eyes of Westerners to, to this to this uh, philosophy. Him himself being a Westerner, so I think that he had a unique experience where he went to India as an outsider and had to learn Sanskrit. I know you took his Sanskrit course. That's yeah, fantastic. I took. Uh, that was that was a really interesting class. So it was uh, I think it was like two semesters, and he had us like you know drawing out the Sanskrit letters, and I think. We were uh, we were translating the Mahabharata, like a mm-hmm. Indian uh, classic. So there was a lot of like interesting wisdom from within while we were translating. What I found really interesting about that Sanskrit course is how many of the words corresponded to the Slavic languages. Uh, so I was born in Ukraine, and I I know a little bit of Russian. Obviously, I know Ukrainian, and a lot of the words were like exactly the same. And there's this theory that there was this original civilization, the Indo-European civilization that preceded India and Europe and everything. And they actually all spoke the same language and kind of spread across the world. But when I saw the words, I was like, that actually seems to be true. These are the exact same words that we use for a language that's like not even, you know, close geographically. Well, yeah, the Indo-European spread. I mean, so, you know, Slavic comes from the Greek as well. And then you get it from, you know, the Indo-European. So, yeah, there are many words that you can find. And I think that that was the beauty of his class is that he allowed you to understand the esoteric things behind the surface of what he was teaching. And let's be real here. What he was teaching was not easy or something that's privy to the Western mind. These are many things that, you know, I didn't, my parents didn't tell me about this stuff when I was growing up. You know, you're learning, you're writing down uh, stuff in the Mahabharata, which is where the Bhagavad Gita comes from, you know, the most famous, one of the most famous texts that Westerners know from India. Um, You know, it's, it's, he opened us up to a world and a worldview that, you know, that, that influences us to this day. And there's no doubt that he had a massive impact. You know, I can speak for myself, but I know we talk about this all the time, just a, a life-changing impact in many ways on, on mm. just, um, you know, the way that a, a Western mind can learn from the East. 
you know, as a philosophy teacher, and he was a, you know, a teacher of Asian philosophies. So you could learn about Buddhism from him or Hinduism, um, primarily, uh, you know, those two, he knew the best, but, um, at the end of the day, you know, you, you could learn anything from that man. He would, you know, he could always uh, have a good uh, foray into mm-hmm. politics now and then and teach you a little thing or two about just the perspectives and the way that, you know, the West views the East and the differences in mindsets. You know, he, he'd like to talk about Carl Jung every now and then as well, which we do. So, you know, if it wasn't for Nicholson, um, you know, we probably, we wouldn't have, he was the guru that taught us about the the ancient mysteries of India, if you will, in a sense of Hinduism and Buddhism. And the reason why I say that, uh, you know, him as the guru is because he often stressed that when you learned about these ancient philosophies, which were pretty much, you know, like religious spiritual practices in many ways, um, you would need to learn them from a guru. That was the, the, the true transmission of the teaching comes through the fact of someone who's learned it from someone else who actually lived it and learned it. Mm. And so because he went to India and you know, lived under you know, all these different people throughout his you know, career as a scholar before he became a, a professor, um, you know, he was then able to impart that knowledge to us. And it was true, genuine knowledge that we now are able to like tell others. And it's genuine because we got it from a genuine source, like the water, you know, the well sprung, uh, you know, from Nicholson has now given us, you know, very fertile fields of philosophy, especially Eastern philosophy to <laughs> utilize for the rest of our lives, if you don't mind me drawing that image there. Yeah, it's it's true. One thing I find fascinating and inspiring about uh, his example is I always remember coming to his office hours and, you know, he was such a, he was really trying to be a true teacher. He was really trying to express that which he found to be uh, interesting, what he was passionate about and trying to convey this truth. But he was always kind of hampered down by the academic system. Like I always remember him talking about like, oh, they're making me write like, research articles and they're making me write this and that. He always seemed really stressed, but then like in class, he was so uplifting. So you as a, uh, as a teacher, as a history teacher, do you ever experience anything like that where you're trying to express, you know, what moves you, what you think could really be helpful to other people, but then the kind of systemic weight pushes down on you and makes it a struggle. And, and thankfully I could have said no before the lockdown because I was given a lot of freedom at the school I was at and I felt very free, but obviously now with the, the changes and the way that conventional teaching is looking for the foreseeable future, I do feel that in a different way. I, I'm not expected to write these stressful academic articles, but at the same time I've lost that connection. And so mm-hmm. Nicholson was a true teacher because he wasn't just preaching. He was, he wanted to engage you and bring you into what he was, you know, his knowledge. He wanted you to be a part of it and add to it. And so that I know he, you know, advised you well with your uh, going to you know, naturopathic school and he did the same for me. He said, he's like, honestly, he's like, you're better off being a teacher in a high school setting, a secondary setting, because in college, you're so limited. And he said a lot of professors in college, they don't know how to teach. Mm. They don't care to learn how to teach. It's, it's just, I have, to, I have to, like you said, write your research articles, write your theses, well, write, strange, put out your books. College professors, no. they don't go through any education on how to teach to some degree, or they do within their programs. I'm yeah, sure. and I'm sure there's something, but he made it seem like that's not the primary thing that you're learning. Mm-hmm. And he said, what you're going to do is so, it's so much more impactful because you're actually teaching kids who are still younger than college. And that's how I always felt. 
the idea of being a college professor is nice and all, and you know, I could wear my uh, little patches on my elbows and whatnot. But like, come on, it's 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 a it's once again, it's a superficial, uh, hot, you know, way of feeling good about yourself. And obviously, you can sh- impact people at a college level. I'm not trying to diss professors here; they have majorly impactful roles on cultivating the real professionals of our day. I'm teaching history to a bunch of kids who might not ever think about it again after they leave high school. Right. So, you know, I'm not trying to argue that professors aren't doing anything, uh, you know, of worth, but the idea of the making the connection when you're teaching, and that's what we realized with Nicholson is that he made the best, he was at his best when he was doing that. And I think all humans are at their best when we're physically engaged with each other and really looking each other in the eyes and being honest about our experiences and really, you know, having the, the genuine passion to teach and uh, share wisdom with people or stories and you learn from stories. So if you can be a good storyteller, you're going to be a decent teacher as long as you know when to stop rambling. Yeah. <laughs> there's definitely, there's an art to it. You know, some, uh, some teachers, they just kind of like look down at their notes or at their PowerPoint slides. Maybe they're being uh, asked to teach and they, they didn't really want to do that. Maybe they wanted to do research. That was my experience in a lot of, uh, a lot of the science courses uh, when I went to school, that it was a lot of people who are into research, they were uh, doing that, but they didn't really want to teach. They were kind of placed in that position where they felt like they were forced to. Um, And that kind of, that goes to say that like the people who are most inspiring tend to be the people who want to be in the place where they are, right? Like they want to express something or they want to create this. Um, so let's get into yoga. I know you are a person who uh, practices yoga uh, daily and you found great benefit in it. And I wanted to talk today about the underlying philosophies behind yoga. Because as we were talking about, yoga in a lot of cases is thought of as this uh, physical thing, like a physical exercise. What are the, the spiritual foundations of yoga? Excellent question. That is what we will unpack today. Um, so let me, let me start with the physical aspects of yoga, because that's really, that's really what, what keeps me in it, like no matter what. And that's, that's an important thing to remember because we want to be grounded in our physical bodies. So the physical aspects of yoga, the physical, what brought me to yoga, okay, was the need for a physical practice with, you know, I had tried Tai Chi, working out, running, all fine, but it never really did it for me because I think what was lacking in those other things, maybe not that I wouldn't do Tai Chi now, I just, it wasn't something that I could do on my own. I needed teachers for this. So I committed to yoga at some point, I would go to classes um, you know, and, and I saw that it led to positive effects on my physical well-being. And then as time went on, I noticed that my, the mental and spiritual effects, if you will, also came about. Now, I was obviously pursuing those at the same time, but I feel like once, once I, I really honed the physical skills of it and, and, and got that reward, that's when the true rewards of like the things that you don't see came about, like the fruits really were delivered then. Um, so yeah, I would, well, I digress. So yoga, let's start with the roots of yoga. Okay. What does it mean? Uh, Mm -hmm. so there's a Sanskrit term, yuj, okay. Which means to yoke or just like, you know, to tie or tether yourself to something or kind of bring yourself together, uh, in a sense. So I just taught this to my students at the end of the year and I had to teach it through distance learning, which is not easy. So I did the best I could to make it simple. So, you know, it's, it's trying to, 
basically gather the various parts of who you are and bring them together um, and to unify them. That's what yoga means. If you mm -hmm. look at what it means to, to unify, to yoke, to bring as one, that's kind of what it means deep down. So if you think about it esoterically that way, or you just try to think of it abstractly, right? Oh, yoga is, this is, this is my goal is to do this. Okay. Mm. You realize that maybe you can't just achieve that goal through the physical practice. Not that you can't make progress on that goal in your physical practice, but that there might be other parts of daily life that are necessary to really fulfill the goal of yoga. And that's where the philosophical elements come in. So um, I guess I'll just go through the, the main ones that are, that are listed in the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, yeah, what are, what are the different types of yoga. So there, yoga is a, is a path. It's not just the asanas, the physical postures, but it's different ways of living that unite you to yourself, the divine. Um, and there's many different routes as we'll, we'll talk about. And it's interesting too, that these different paths of yoga are for different people at different times, that there's right. not necessarily like one right way to do it. There's, there's many ways. And also touching on the fact that yoga or that word huge meaning union, it really brings yoga into this idea of holistic healing. Because the word holistic comes from whole. It comes from making things whole. Even the word heal comes from uh, an English word meaning whole. So this idea is present in humanity since as early as we can, we can read. This idea that something is not right with us mentally, spiritually, physically. And the answer to this is to unite our, ourselves with ourselves or with the divine or with our environment. Right. With everything, if you can. And I think that's important to realize is that this is self-realization. This is mm -hmm. self-actualization because we are inherently whole. The Buddha nature is within all right, or Atman is within. If you want to look at it from a Buddhist or a Hindu perspective, uh, respectively, that's there. You know, and that's something that that's what the goal of yoga is: is to essentially to remember that unity and those different paths that you take at different points of your life. Guess where they all lead? Right to you. All right, mm -hmm. so that's that's the idea. Um, so yeah, the main the main three uh, types of yoga, philosophic paths of yoga that are that are mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita, and they are, you know, some of them are much older than that. They've been practiced for a long time. The Bhagavad Gita just helps, uh, you know, identify them for us. And, and the main character um, uh, and the other main character who are really together, Arjuna and Krishna, Krishna being the God and Arjuna being the representation of the physical human, um, they talk about this and what they each are. So there's, I guess we'll start with, um, we'll start with karma yoga, because that's probably the most important one to break down and easy right. enough. And I kind of like the way that you broke down karma yoga. We were talking about it earlier. So if you don't mind, um, I'll let you take this one. Sure. Yeah. So karma yoga is a certain path of yoga and karma in uh, Sanskrit means like action or to do. So this is the path of the doer. It's kind of more of the warrior path. And what's really interesting about it, what we were talking about, is that a lot of mythology focuses on this aspect of realization. Uh, it focuses on actions, actions of heroes in the world, actions of gods in the world. How do they act rightly? How do they act in a way that's in accordance with their spirit? How does one find fulfilling 
meaning within their lives through how they act in the world. This is the path of karma yoga. Uh, and it, this idea of karma yoga is present in basically every religion, right? As a part of it, like in Christianity, it's love your neighbor, turn the other cheek, do good deeds. Faith without good works is hollow. This is karma yoga. Karma yoga is enlightenment or spiritual realization is not really valuable unless it's applied and it's made to benefit others. So the path of karma yoga is the path of doing good things to bring good into the world and also bring good to yourself. And as anyone has experienced, when you do something truly good or with a good intention, it makes you feel like amazing. It makes you feel great when you do just a random act of kindness and you don't really think about it. It makes you feel great. And it's, it's such a shame that that's not stressed as the important things of what make a person happy when they are. Sometimes, you know, just like writing a little note to somebody or giving them a present or doing something unexpected because you're just like, oh, I just want to see them smile, want to make them you know, happier, want to express my love. Those kind of things bring you into that state of love and they bring you into that state of union because to do those things, you have to be it. There's no way to like fake a, a good act of kindness. Like you'll know if you're faking it, you'll know if you're trying to seek something from it. And that's the path of karma yoga. It's the, the way of union with the divine through action and how you behave in the world. That was beautiful, Bogdan. I couldn't have said any better myself, but I think you actually, uh, you know, tied into the next type of yoga in a way when you're talking about compassion and love. Um, but I think, and, and that's what, what makes, uh, you know, it takes you to the path of bhakti, which will be the next mm, one that we talk devotion. about. Right. But th- what takes you there, if you think about it, okay, is the fact that you're not attached to the fruits of your actions. That's what Krishna says to Arjuna is that you can practice karma yoga, but if you're attached to the fruits of your actions, like you mm. are doing this because you really want the consequences of your action. Mm-hmm. That's what take. That's it's not that you're not doing the right thing or won't get good karma, but you're accruing you're accruing attachment to your deeds, and even and even that ultimately will create a sense of ego. Um, you know, which in, in that particular philosophy is not something you're trying to do. You're trying to do these selfless acts. And you mentioned most, you know, a bunch of selfless acts in your examples that you gave. And I think that, you know, I think we all want, we all wish that we act selflessly, selflessly. We all want to, but at the end of the day, you know, it's hard to deny that we are beings that act in our own self-interest. So I think that's the path of the karma yogi, which is a path that we walk our entire lives is to try to figure out, you know, okay, like how can I balance my desires and still not infringe upon the rights of others, um, you know, or, or just their well-being or their, you know, because sometimes it's, there's a tough decision to make when you know you have to tell someone, let's say, a serious truth about what they're doing. Maybe it's not good for them, but you you feel deep down that like you're doing it because you want them to be better for themselves. What if that person doesn't think that you're, you know, there's anything wrong with them, right? And then are you doing something wrong because you think that you're trying to like help them be better, but then they don't really, they're like, no, there's nothing wrong with me. Why do you think that's wrong? And that's, that's, kind of that's the, the teaching of the karma yoga. And I, I love that you brought up that point. Cause I think that's the, that's the key thing of it is there's a saying in the Bhagavad Gita, you have a, a right to your actions, but not to the fruits of your actions, which 
seems kind of esoteric. You know, what does this mean? I think it's talking about a psychological point. It's talking about if you act with certain expectations, you, you lose real engagement with the moment of action and, and truly acting in a way that's good. For example, if you're doing a good deed because you're expecting something good to happen, it's still a good deed, but it won't bring that, that energy of love in you like doing something for no reason and, and fighting that impulse within yourself to have pure self-interest because self-interest does exist and it's important. I mean, it's what keeps us alive. It, it's an important part, but it's not the whole thing. And sometimes the best way to act in that regard, when you were talking about the case of, you know, telling somebody a truth that they don't want to hear is reflecting on where are you really coming from? Are you coming from a place that you really want to help them? Or maybe there's some element of malice in it too. Maybe there's some element of revenge or if there isn't and you do that, then that's the right action. Because you can't know what the fruits of the action are. You don't know what's going to come from this seed you plant or this tree. But that's the whole message of karma yoga is don't focus on the, the fruit or, you know, what it grows into, but focus on doing the, the right thing at the right time. And this is incredibly difficult because that could be very dangerous. You never know what's going to happen. This is for positive and negative. It applies to, you know, doing something because you want something good to happen and then, you know, being disappointed because it didn't happen or doing something that you want to happen and something bad happens and then you're disappointed in yourself, but it really wasn't your fault. Like you did the right thing, but you can't control the outcome of many things. Right. So all you can do is act authentically and be prepared for whatever backlash or positive you get. Right. If you're not attached to it, you won't care, you know, or you won't, you won't care. I guess you'll be detached and you'll realize that, well, I, all I, I, all I have to do is act righteously towards myself. And, you know, I have my moral compass. I have, you know, I, I, I believe that my character is always striving to be on the way of the karma yogi. And therefore, you know, whatever I do wrong or right is the perception of an outside, you know, uh, subjective opinion in some ways, you know, I'm not sure. This is where my students now philosophy club will be like, well, what about murder, Mr. Anderson? You know, they always say that because they're like, why is that subjectively wrong? Like, because that could be subjectively okay. And I'm like, all right, I get it. I can't apply this to every circumstance. But the idea is that if you're acting authentically in the, in the way that you're acting not to physically harm others, usually, you know, if you really are mm-hmm. trying to be a good person and you have a goal to be um, an upright, upstanding person, a good character, then your actions will speak for themselves and you will, you know, you'll face some backlash. You'll get a lot of praise. And there's never been a person who's ever been authentic that wasn't controversial in some way, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're always trying to do the right thing by people, you could become a people pleaser. And if you always try to do things for yourself, then you become a narcissist, right? So there's a balance in there where you got to have a healthy individuality and make decisions for yourself, but also, you know, realize that uh, Mm -hmm. you're living with other people in this world and, you know, they, there's they a really interesting insight from within the Bhagavad Gita related to what you just said, your students tell you about murder. Cause mm-hmm. right in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna, this uh, archer and uh, Krishna is this God who's driving the chariot bringing, cause the story of the Bhagavad Gita is the story of um, a great war that happens in India. Um, Mahabharata. The, the one you were writing about in Sanskrit class. Exactly. The, the kind of great war. And what was really problematic about this war is that 
it was essentially families fighting families. It was kind of like a civil war. It was, you know, there was uh, factions all, all over the world that were previously united, even family members like cousins and uncles who were literally meeting on the battlefield to fight in this uh, ancient war that I guess hasn't been pinned down like in an exact location or anything like that that I'm aware of. But in That'll the be another Bible, podcast, Bob, yeah. <laughs> we talk about where the, uh, where that was in like 3300 BC. Yes, yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> people people writing writing it were talking about an ancient war, and this this text is already ancient itself. So right. Um, but anyway, in the in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna, who's you know ready to go into this battlefield, the archer and Krishna, this kind of godhead leading this uh, chariot. He, he's asking, uh, you know, Krishna, do I really have to do this? Do I really have to slay my kinsmen? Do I really have to? That's my uncle over there. Like, and uh, Krishna gives him a really interesting answer, which I think could be uh, applied metaphorically, uh, but also literally in some senses. And kind of what he advises him is that like, this, it, essentially this war is one to stop evil. This is a just war. The, these people came and they did this and that. And this is actually how you protect people. This is actually how you, you know, maintain the peace and the safety of the kingdom. And it's terrible that it has to come to this, but sometimes it does. And he also gives them the insight that it's not you who's doing anything. You're simply an actor in a process that's like way beyond you. And this is your place is to do this, this thing. And it's kind of like this justification for war and violence. On the other hand, though, there's a metaphorical aspect, which I've heard um, from, what was his name? Uh, Swami Sachananda? Uh, Vivekananda? No. Um, I, forget, I forget his exact name. He wrote the, it was a book about like the yogi's path. Mm. I forget it. I forget oh, his, Shivanand, uh, Shivan, Shivananda. I think I'm saying his yeah, name yeah, a little I, bit wrong. I think, I think that's the one. Yeah, I think oh, that's man. the one. Anyway, okay. he, he brings out the point that on the literal surface, it seems like this is a justification for war and violence. But what he's saying is that the whole Bhagavad Gita is a metaphor. All these, you know, enemies are your own mind and your own spirit, the negative aspects of it. So when like, when uh, Krishna tells Arjuna, no, like you must fight. And Arjuna's like, but I don't want to kill my own, you know, people. It's really talking about I don't want to kill my own like negative thoughts or my beliefs or the things that I hold true that I am afraid without. And all these different aspects of the mind that we think are our biggest allies, but are actually our enemies to, to health, to uh, being a peace of minds, attachments, essentially habits, attachments. We don't, they feel like they're us. We don't want to just give them up. We don't want to fight them because they seem like they're who we are. But it, in this story, no, like that's, you know, that's the war against the negative parts of yourself is, is, is a righteous one. It's one that we undertake every time we choose a good action versus a, a bad action. Right. And, and the, the implication for that in ancient times is obviously very important to understand because what, what he argues, Krishna, is that it's your dharma. And everyone in this, mm. you know, dharma means duty, right? Your sacred spiritual duty. Um, it could be spiritual or it could be a worldly duty. It's however you want to look at it. But the idea is that we each have a role in this life and it's to fulfill the dharma that we get. And so Krishna, or rather Arjuna, the main character, doesn't want to kill his relatives. But Krishna is saying, like, deep down, you're not really killing anyone. Like, this is all a great game of, like, the one that is God and everyone's playing roles. And, you know, 
Um, don't take it to heart that much because really it's just a moment in time. Um, you know, personally, I think it's a good argument if you're trying to get people to justify being warriors and like murdering people, because then it's like, all right, well, it's just a part of like being a human being that this is what we do. Personally, you know, I think we need to value life more than that. But like you said, the story is obviously it's, it's hitting home on realities of this world, how insane it is that we do kill each other. Mm. Okay. In order to get our points across but at the same time, it's definitely, and it's really more helpful to view it in the symbolic light of these are parts of ourselves that we are at war with. And yes, like we need to go to battle with them. We can't just quiver in fear and, and disengage. There is hard work that we need to do. And that's what karma yoga is, is that hard work of making those mm-hmm. decisions day in and day out in your life and mm-hmm. trying to be you know, a righteous person uh with all your faults you know you're gonna have faults and flaws that's that's a given this reminds me of a of a saying in the uh, Tao Te Ching which relates I think exactly to this of of Mm. fighting these negative qualities it says that the path of knowledge is adding something every day the path of wisdom the path of the way is letting go of something every day I saw you post that the other day and I was like, oh man, I'm on that path of knowledge, aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) We all are, right? Right. But we're on both paths, you know? Right. But but the idea of of this, it's a deep point. It's not not exactly obvious to understand what it's pointing to. But for me, what it means is that simplify. Like simplify your life, simplify the complexity Remove that which doesn't bring you happiness, that doesn't bring you joy. Remove uh, ideas that don't help you. Removing is the path to your true nature. Because as you said, we already are whole. So that means every that means if we really are whole, then the only reason we don't think we're whole is because we've added so many layers yes. of complexity of this is how I was born. This is how I was raised. This person did bad for me. This person did good. This is who I am. This is where I'm going. And all these layers and the path of the Tao is re- remove these layers and, and live and be, be there, be there for your life experience with that preconception. But that's really painful. That feels like killing a part of yourself. Right. Well, you are, you, you are yourself. That's it's ego death in a sense that, that right. You've built up in order to live in the world. Then you realize, Oh man, I got to shed. And it was a, a necessary adaptation. Divisions. That's Absolutely. always a good, good point to make. There is like, so, you know, coming in, we both got really deep into Eastern philosophy. We were all about, you know, relinquish the ego and transcend it and these kind of things. But as you go in life, you start seeing like, oh, like the, what we call the ego or the self, it has like a purpose. Like the persona allows us to fit into society and, and make a influence on it. Uh, to, to some sense for, for better, that it has like its own purpose. It's not the greatest goal of life, but it has, it's a vehicle. It's a, it's a tool for being a part of the society and having some stability of like, you kind of know who you are and where you're going because without that, like you're just in pure chaos and that's not a good place to spiritual, you know, wisdom. So yeah, you want you want a spirit, you want an anchor. You want definitely want an anchor in life, and you want to know when to pick it up, like you said. So you know, I think it's good you brought up the Dao De Jing and the idea that you know we're we're constantly balancing. Like you don't want to 
I, I liked what you said about knowledge versus, um, you know, letting go of the Tao because you don't want to just hoard knowledge. You could just know a lot of great, like a lot of things, like especially me as a historian, I learn a lot of different things. Some of those things that I know aren't necessarily going to be conducive to me living a better life. They could be interesting to talk about. But if I need to learn something about, let's say, like how to you know, fix something in my home, that's a much more conducive knowledge to an immediate thing I need to address than it would be to like learn about Lord Conquer- Cochrane's, uh, you know, j- naval journeys around the world in like the early 19th century Britain and during the Napoleonic Wars. It's interesting to me in one sense, but I don't know how useful that knowledge will be unless I start sailing around the world in, you know, the 19th century, early 19th century British, you know, empire, right? It's, it's important to be able to filter. Now, you might be thinking, but weren't you just talking about how filters are what we build up and we have all these blocks to like taking in, you know, the, the way things are, um, you know, in a purity without an ego? Yes, but you still need that what those filters, if like we're they're they're who you are. Like your personality is almost like a response to the world as it is. And so you're trying to mold it and trying to make it so that, like you said, you can impact people in this world and, and actually be able to transmit to them and make a connection with them and like have some sort of coherent message. Because if you don't have a sense of self, you're not gonna be necessarily you know you're not going to necessarily have a coherent message because you're just going to be fleeting every moment which maybe for some people that's their dharma maybe for some people in this life they need to totally relinquish any sense of identity it's very possible that that's mm. their highest uh soul achievement let's say or whatever just to even live a healthy life to not stress out mm. everyone's can different you, uh, can you touch on this idea of uh dharma as opposed to karma yeah, so that's great uh, to bring up because that's what you know the kids always get confused too because they sound so similar. So karma is the actions; those are more like your accrued, the things that you accrue over time because you're 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 making actions in the world. So your dharma is like it's like your long term goal or what you feel you need to do. It's like definitely more of uh, you know more of a consciousness or spiritual focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your karma is more like your physical actions that you take. And then your karma you know, or, or whatever karma you accrue could lead to whether or not your dharma has been fulfilled or not. Um, so, you know, if your dharma is to, you might have a dharma in a life that you're born into this life and you might be born into like have a pretty bad life and do bad things for whatever reason, that was your dharma. And maybe for whatever reason, the people in your life that raised you were able to change that. And then all of a sudden you end up living a good life uh, where your karma ends up uh, the karmic actions that you take end up altering what your supposed dharma would have been. So like dharma, dharma is in a sense like a string that pulls you through life. And then your karma is like how much you tug on that string, if mm. you will, in mm. what direction. And it's sometimes it's better not to fight the string and to just follow where it goes, mm. depending on what kind of life you're living. And other times maybe you really have to, you know, or, or think about a fish, like uh, getting stuck in the hook. Like, are you going to fight? Are you going to fight? You're just going to let them reel you in. So the Dharma is more like, it's like fate or your mission or your calling. It's kind of, you know, why are you here on this earth? And your karma is your individual actions for better or worse that either take you towards it or away from it in some, to some degree. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think that's a key point to like translate it over into terms that we understand because I think these ideas 
they're deep psychological insights. Like whether or not someone believes in a spiritual being or uh, believes in the impact of, you know, karma, what goes around, comes around. They're true in this mysterious psychological sense that we can't explain. So if you do good things as like a way of being, and that's your typical way, like you do good things for people, good things will happen to you because you're influencing your social environment in ways that you can't predict. So like you leave flowers at somebody's house, maybe when you're sick, that person will leave flowers at your house. You can never perceive that this is what will happen. But when you're constantly doing good actions, it's a simple fact of reality that when someone treats you with love and kindness, you you feel like you, you want to do it back to them. Like that's the natural human response. If you feel like somebody, you know, does something hateful towards you, you want to return it. That's how, that's human nature, right? So karma in a sense, like whether or not you believe in the spiritual force that's making it happen, it's the, at the most basic level, it's the force that, you know, gives you the, gives you basically the fruits of all your actions that you never see where they're coming from or what is happening. And it could be for better or worse. If you rob, steal, lie, you know, it might be good for a couple of years, but then eventually people will do that to you. Maybe you'll end up in prison. Maybe somebody will, you know, threaten violence on you or maybe it'll actually happen. And it's, it's because of those actions. Like someone who didn't do those things probably is way less likely to experience those things. Right. You create a psychological or, you know, you have a mindset, you create a psychological aura around you, you transmit a certain vibe, but, you know, if you keep it simple as that, um, you know, we're all electromagnetic beings, we're all vibing, you know, it's true. We, we don't understand emotion psychologically. We've only begun to map consciousness and really have an understanding of what that is. But we know that thought form waves do exist to an extent. We're trying to understand it. Right. So that means that everything we feel and think influences the world around us. So obviously then our actions become much more um, impactful because they are like, they're not just thoughts or emotions that already influence the field. And, you know, and this is where we start to get into science, which is great because then, you know, people who don't believe in God, you know, or, or feel the need to connect with anything spiritually, it's like, okay, well, like you said before, this is just the way that the world works. And this is the way that humans interact in right. the social environment. They're psychological and philosophical insights that whether or not you believe in a God or a deity, they're truths that people discovered. Maybe it was from God or deity. Maybe it wasn't. Who knows? But that's what they discovered through their actions. And they wrote it down on paper because they were like, this is my whole life I lived and this is what I noticed. I noticed that when I acted in a good way, good things happened to me. And I don't know why really, but you know, there's many explanations, but it almost doesn't even matter because- at the end of the day, you just want like a map for how do you live life in such a way that you are fulfilled and you're happy. I mean, what, what else is the point of philosophy at the end of the day exactly. other than applying it to actually living a good life? And that's what these paths of yoga teach us is the different you know ways that you learn how to live a good life or that you walk towards mm -hmm. that. Um, the next one we've mentioned a lot already, bhakti yoga, mm -hmm. which is you know basically just the, the path of devotion, the path of like unconditional love and, and surrendering to that love. And that could be a love of God or a deity or a love of a, another human being that you're devoted to your mother, your grandmother, your father, your girlfriend, you know, whoever, you know, your teacher, you know, uh, you know, so, someone who's helping you, your doctor, your nurse, like, and when you do that, when you see that, and I'm going to take it to this, you know, religious aspect here, because it is, you know, coming from Hinduism, at least, you know, first and foremost, is that, when you, when you at least think or, or see God within everyone, whether it is your doctor, your teacher, even the person that pisses you off on the road, okay, 
that's when you're practicing some good bhakti yoga is when you people who are you are angry with and that you don't even know through a hole in the wall and you are so you know so ready to just flip them off or get angry at them if you can realize and recognize bhakti yoga and 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 realize that within them is the you know the spirit of all or god or whatever you want to believe that's when you're really going to practice bhakti yoga so well and be able to learn what it means to just have that unconditional love and surrender to that unconditional love of all life all being and you don't become frustrated because the separation that we experience is technically illusory when you get into the grand scheme of the oneness of all under a hindu you know philosophical mm. mindset or religious mindset if you will i think this is a good place to bring in also what are the practices that correspond to these different paths of yoga so for bhakti yoga these include uh prayer uh mindfulness exercises that are based on compassion so those actually happen to be some of my my favorite ones and the most impactful ones that I, I felt for myself. I tend to be, in terms of Myers-Briggs, in terms of Carl Jung's theory, I tend to be more on the feeling side rather than the thinking side, although it's kind of a little bit balanced. But for people who Same. tend to feel, yeah, that's why we get along. We're yeah. very like <laughs> fervent feeling philosophers. Yeah, we think and feel together. It's great. You know, thinking and feeling overlaps pretty easily for us, which is nice. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing to have. And for, and for people like that, the kind of meditation or the kind of yoga that helps uh, and comes naturally is the forms of compassion. So in, uh, in Tibetan uh, Buddhism, there's this practice which involves uh, sitting in a meditation posture, imagining people who are suffering in your life. They might be family members. They might be uh, people you're angry with. Anyone you have any charged negative emotion towards, these are the most important people to start with and then spread out to uh, generally everyone. But to breathe in their suffering, sorrow, and pain, you breathe it in as like a black smoke, which is already like, I don't even know if I want to do that, but that's part <laughs> of the practice. It's like- Right. You got to overcome the separation. Exactly. And, and, so you're in the polarity. You're taking it in. You breathe in that black smoke of- you know, that, that pain and that anguish and that, that, that thickness and that weighing down, you breathe it in and with compassion in your heart, you imagine like a golden light in your heart area, transmuting this energy and turning this hate and this anger and this frustration, this pain into love. And then you imagine these people and then you breathe out like this green healing energy back to them. And you, you do this even for a few repetitions and you start noticing. First, you notice what, what I said, which is you just don't want to breathe in their bad feeling. Because that's like the human reaction is like, oh, they're suffering. They're in pain. Like, I don't want to bring that into That's me. not my suffering. That's yes. not my pain. And there's a fear that like that will make me suffer in pain. But what this exercise teaches is you bring it in, you ch- transmute it with love and you bring out the healing energy. And that's the fundamental attitude of compassion because- Compassion, true compassion arises when you witness the the suffering of someone else. You take it in, you allow it to influence you and make you not feel good because that's what it makes you feel like you could be that person. But to do something about it, to do something loving, to not like shy away from it. But anyway, this practice is really helpful for any kind of uh, interpersonal issues if you're angry at someone or uh, you know, you're having a difficulty or arguments or you know, you're, these are the people to do that with. And then 
it's so amazing how quickly that love will come and that compassion will come back and you'll realize, oh, like they acted in this way because, you know, they were hurting and like you start actually seeing what is the real case and then you can actually go in there and you can act karma yoga in such a way that it actually brings goodness for both people. So, so these paths all go together. Good. But we're as far as karma yoga, now, yes. well, let me just say something about for it. Well, let me just say something about yeah, bhakti sure. yoga with the practices so we can finish that up. Mm. One, bhakti yoga is the path of the empath, okay? If you're an empathetic mm. person and you feel that, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, mm. um, that is what bhakti yoga is all about. And like you said, it ties into karma yoga. You end up doing the right thing for people. Um, another thing that bhakti yogis are really known for, and which this is where I become a bhakti yogi, because um, I'm not as maybe willing to breathe in people's negative emotions unless like I really feel like I can connect with them because I would worry about like people that I don't know as well. Like, what am I really doing here? If I can really work with someone one-on-one, I'm more than willing to do that if I know I have a strong connection with them and I want to do it. I would be a little more hesitant with others. Maybe I don't know as well or I don't know if I can trust their energy. That's just mm-hmm. me because I am sensitive to those things. Yeah, well, th- that's the interesting thing just to bring it in before you continue is that this practice is particularly from the healing tradition. It's particularly from the area of Tibetan Buddhism uh, where the medicine Buddha is called upon and it's kind of the path of the the healer in a sense, you because that's what you do that. as a healer okay. is you meet, you know, strangers right. and their pain and you have to practice taking in their pain and, and helping them. So this is like, it's a specific practice. Uh, yeah, whereas no. there's other bhakti yoga practices that are not involving breathing in pain. There's a lot in the Buddhist tradition as well, but that's a specific one for the healing. Right. Practice. No, for you as a, as you know, as a doctor, that's so important. Obviously you have to be able to have a healthy relationship to that because otherwise it can drag you down. Right. Um, bhakti yoga. So the things that I like to do with it are devotional chanting, mantras, mm. singing, bhakti mm-hmm. yoga. Okay. It makes you feel good. Uh, it's, Anything it's good that brings the feeling up. Right, because I see, you know, Virgin Mary above you. I wrote a song over the lockdown called like Panayiamu, which is just like Holy Mary in Greek. And it was like Philaxeme, like watch over me, guard me. All right. And it's like worship songs are great. Um, They really do bring you in the good mindset. It doesn't even matter like what religion you sing it for. It will just put you in a good Mm -hmm. mood. And that's, that's the science element of it is you sing and you build the right vibe and it puts you in a good place. You don't need to believe in anything really. That's the fascinating thing about it. Have you ever listened to uh, Krishna Das? Yes. So, okay. So I've been to a concert of his. I remember you talking about this. Yes. It was such an, so basically what they, uh, it's this, um, tradition of music popular in India called Kirtan, which is this devotional singing. So, uh, you know, the, the person on stage will sing these kind of hymns of praise to, you know, Krishna or this God or that God. And um, they'll have, you know, somebody playing um, the, what's tabla? the name for the, yeah, the tabla. Yeah. The, it's like a, Indian drum that has all these different resonances, really nice. And somebody else playing like the sitar and things like oh, yeah. that. And then they sing that and then they stop and then the audience sings it back to them. So it's this like back and forth and back and forth. But anyway, in this kind of environment, it's, it's so fascinating. And even when you just listen to the, the kirtans on tape of like the singer and then the crowd singing back and back and forth, these devotional uh, hymns, Although you can't understand the words, because I mean, I don't speak 
Sanskrit fluently. I mean, I learned a little bit of it, but I know some of the words, but I don't understand really what's being said. You still get in this state of like emotional uh, rapture and this like, great feeling. And you can't explain why because you can't understand the words, but just the feeling that's being transmitted through the voice and being echoed back and the music, it puts you in this 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 state of um of love and i actually heard this and case bliss. and bliss yeah let me quickly just say yeah, this sure. uh if anyone wants an example of what what Bogdan's talking about in a conventional song that almost everyone probably knows across the universe jai guru deva mm. um you know you hear john lennon saying that at the end of the song whenever i sing that i get the chills man when i sing it for other people they feel it too it's just like powerful thing you don't even need to know what it means, but if it's sung in the right way, it's this devotional bhakti-based, it's going to uplift. It's a very uplifting energy. I just wanted to add that in there. Yeah, that, and, and you know, this, these traditions happen within Christianity and other religions where there's this you know, singing of songs. This, this is a key Hallelujah, part. right? Everyone loves right. that Jack, Jeff Buckley song. I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily a church song, but it's got that, that vibe. That's the idea. You right, know? It, it, it has the potential to elevate your spirit. And who knows why, even when you don't understand the words because they're in Latin or, or Sanskrit. I actually heard a story that was really interesting and I, I totally understand it. So there was, um, there was this veteran who had PTSD, was very troubled after coming back from a war and you know, was in constant depression, was, was drinking, was doing anything to take their minds off of the pain. They felt numb, they felt out of it. And th- the story goes that uh, Krishna Das, this Kirtan singer, was was put on for this person, and they had never heard of it before. They weren't interested in you know philosophy or Indian philosophy or anything of that matter. But when they started hearing it, they they burst out into tears, and they couldn't explain why. And and that I think that's what it is. Is like you don't have to have a rational understanding of the the energy or the healing that could come through these sounds. But they reach in a deep place. When someone is singing from that deep place, from the heart, you feel it. You don't have to understand the words. The words don't really, uh, they don't matter so much. Amen, brother. So that's that's bhakti yoga. Yeah, no, because it's, I feel it, man. I think that's why I love music so much too. It's like, I love it for all sorts of emotions. Like I play metal, I play regular rock and roll. I'll play like classical acoustic. Like it's all great. It all gives you a wavelength to ride for a bit. And mm-hmm. so the guy who's been through a lot is, has been traumatized by his experiences. Here's a, a frequency. Doesn't, it doesn't need to be interpreted by his brain because it's, it's, it's literally hitting something in him at such a, a deep energetic level that yeah. he just instantly, his nervous system is you know, overwhelmed by the influx of whatever these emotions are, these neural, uh, you know, this neural activity that just is awakened. It's yeah. a beautiful it's a beautiful, miraculous thing. And that's where science becomes miraculous, in my opinion, is when we can see how like music can heal or, you know, things like that. To me, sound healing is a beautiful way to, um, uh, to, to manifest that. I don't know if you've had any sound healers on Bogdan. Have you? I haven't. No. You know, I, earlier on, I was really interested in sound healing. And I'm wondering if there's what ways I can actually apply it other than like music therapies and, and things of that nature. But I remember uh, really being interested in uh, cymatics or chymatics, yes. the study of chymatics. like how how sound affects 
matter waves kima in greek means waves kimata really fascinating if you guys are into sound healing at all that are listening uh, look up this word cymatic c-y-m-a-t-i-c-s or spelled with a k also but basically what some of these even youtube videos show is if you put like a plate and then under it like a metal plate and under it you put uh you know a speaker that's playing a certain frequency like it's playing fourth 32 hertz or 580 or whatever. I'm not sure the numbers. Yeah, 432, baby. That's right. Right here. Actually, 444. Well, 444 is what they want us to tune it to. Or 440. 440 444 is different. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you do. You're you like that 444. I like the bright, it gives a little brightness to it. Mm. Um, but anyway, so this plate's there, there's the speaker, and it's emitting a certain frequency. And you you put sand on top of it. And what's really miraculous is this uh, frequency that's emitted through this plate, it'll arrange the sand in geometric patterns that are like, like circles and squares and like stars and all sorts of different shapes, depending on what frequency you play through it. And you'll see it, the sand literally dance into a form. It'll dance into a pattern. Um, And it'll stay like that. As long as you play the frequency, it's not like it's just always changing when you play it. Um, But that's fascinating because it's, it's showing that sound frequency vibration can actually change the organization of matter. So when we're listening to music with really loud speakers, it, it might be moving our molecules. Like it, it is, is for sand, at least maybe our water molecules, who knows? I mean, well, it, it works for water as well. It does work for water as well. That's what I was going to say is that mm. it's, it's, they've studied it on water and they see that it affects. So like if you leave a cup of water out, and you're listening to classical music, the organization of the molecules of, of the, or the water, of the water molecules will be much more um, harmonious, just like they'll be much more distinct and like well done versus like, I don't know, rap or metal. I mean, I like that music, but it, it gives it more of like a blobby. It's not as like structural. Like the bass, the bass sounds, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's more like, it's also more like disjointed where it's, it's like much more, it looks like... Um, I'm trying to like the Fibonacci sequence or like, you know, those like those things that we find in nature that are like perfect, like the way that they form like a Mm -hmm. shell, let's say, Mm -hmm. and it just like flows effortlessly. That's what we'd want in our bodies for health, right? Optimal health. We want our vibrations and our cells to be one that leads to um, harmony versus discord. Cause like in a lot of ways, that's what, you know, cancer is obviously with the, the, you know, the, the cells have been, the, the vibration they're getting is essentially throwing them off to the point where they're producing more and more metastasized negative cells that are hurting the body. Um, you know, I'm speaking very loosely now. I'm not trying to act like I understand the, the nature of, uh, you know, deep down oncology. But the idea is that this ease is because our body is not operating from ease and not, you know, it's not being able to uh, express itself optimally. So our cells show that with all these problems mm. and these issues that come up. The harmony between the organs. I mean, you can think right. of that as like the harmony of the spheres and the, the planets and how they all relate to each other. And that's how our organs relate to each other. They all function uh, in this deep interconnected relationship that when one of them's in trouble, the other one takes over and helps it. But you know, if they're all in trouble, then you just have a state of disease that isn't able to overcome. And let's tie that now back to the pads of yoga because there are, mm. these pads are all here for a reason. We need each one of them. 
uh, you can practice one and be better at one. And uh, the next one that we get into, I'll say that me and Bogdan, that's probably the ones that were the, you know, the, has come the easiest to us in Jnana yoga. But you asked very quickly about karma yoga mm-hmm. um, and, and how, what the are the ways to practice yeah. that? I don't know if I can give you a straightforward answer because that's based on your dharma and your life, you know, based on what you need to individually do for yourself. It could mm. be very different. You know, helping an old lady across the street could be a good example, I guess, of a karmically, you know, a karma yoga act that's righteous. But based on what you need for your life, karma yoga is going to look very different. If you're a teacher versus a soldier versus, a, you know, a doctor versus, you know, all these different jobs that you right. might have that would require different actions of you in life fulfilling your karma. So I think that's the, that's the one that you live every day and have to figure out on your own. You know, there's not a lot of guidance with karma yoga other than like reading the Bible or reading, you know, a holy text that tells you this is good, this is bad. And you try to create your own moral, you know, uh, judgment over time, you know, a, a foundation that you act, act from, you know, of, you know, for the most part, during your days. So I think that the next one coming in here, jnana yoga, which is knowledge yoga, gnosis, jnana, that's where the, once again, Indo-European, that's where the root of the word comes from, is from the Sanskrit, right? Jnana, gnosis, knowledge, true wisdom. So how does one go about that path? Well, that's something that I also was, uh, you know, wondering about because you can read all the books that you want in the world. And we always talk about this, right? you become so theory heavy and you learn all this knowledge, but what does it really lead to? So I think jnana yoga, I think if you're a Hindu or even a Buddhist, I think it's based on like spiritual realization of like trying to really just understand the division between you and the world and you and others is actually more, is sort of an illusion. And that's where bhakti yoga comes in to kind of give you that, you know, oh, we're all connected. We all should devote ourselves to each other. And I think jnana yoga is just like, getting into the nitty gritty of like the rationalizations and the psychological makeup of who we are, um, you know, tied more into maybe, yeah, like our, our view of self versus other. Um, Cause I know the main thing, the main lesson for Jnana yoga and Hinduism is to recognize Atman, your individual self or soul as Brahma, meaning the ultimate reality. Not even necessarily God, the ultimate reality, the, the isness of all, the essence of all, the being of, you know, that you, uh, ties us all together, which some like to allocate a spirit to and others don't feel the necessity for. I would agree with both of them. I think the idea is that at the end of the day, scientifically, energetically, there's something that ties us all together. And yana yoga is the pursuit to kind of have that realization once more. Oh my God, I'm one with everything in the universe. All these atoms, you know, are creating me physically. But, uh, you know, if you believe in uh, quantum theory and quantum physics, they're also a part of the entire world at the same time. And it's not, you know, this is all technically illusory, right? With Maya. That's the the fascinating thing about it is even within the religious traditions, like Christianity, they talk about God as the great unknowable. So even, even when you're talking about God from within a Christian context, you're talking about something that is not necessarily directly perceivable, something way beyond the human mind to grasp what this is. And when you're looking at it from a more scientific perspective, it's the same way that you view reality. I mean, we exist in an amazing, possibly infinite space. There's millions and billions of suns and planets that we don't know where they really came from. Our our bodies are 
thought to be made, the very atoms are thought to be made from the furnaces of these suns and these cataclysms that happened billions of years ago. And, you know, the sun is just there and it's keeping us alive. We have the perfect conditions for life here on this earth. And we don't know if there's life in the universe. Like we're so small. The reality is so unfathomably large to us. Like even, you know, even the world, even the earth is so big to us, but the earth is just such a small part of the whole universe. And we don't understand that at all. I mean, probably never will because we could barely even understand what's right in front of us exactly and that's, and that's that why same like view of like that unknown like that's that same rapture that happens to somebody when they look out at the sky as when they think about like god that's the same like i don't know what this is but there's something here that i don't understand and this something is everything else like i'm exactly. the self and this is the whole reality around me but i'm also part of the whole reality like I'm not separate from it. I wouldn't be here if there wasn't a sun. I wouldn't be here if there wasn't an earth. Wouldn't be here if the stars didn't die and make the atoms that became my body and transform from the earth. You just, it's an unfathomable mystery where life comes from. So even from a scientific perspective, you got to say like, this is mysterious, this life. And that's that's why Jnana yoga is the hardest to practice, but Jnana yoga is scientific. It's based, you're, you're learning from your experiences and you can learn from reading, you know, or or doing these crazy physics experiments that they do at the Hadron Collider and all Mm -hmm. that. You know what I mean? Like there's no doubt they're doing some interesting work there. And I'm sure it's, you know, teaching us about the building blocks of, of our reality. But I think some of these Jnana yogis from the past, like you said, the earth is so unfathomable, but the earth is small compared to the universe. Some of these guys, you know, were probably uh, able to travel through their minds throughout all eternity. You know what I mean? Like jnana yoga is, like you said, the unfathomable, the study of the unfathomable and the intelligible world, which we're only scratching the surface of, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the real, like, you, you, you know, I couldn't say any better than you did trying to, you know, break it down with, with all the different things that we could think about. But that's the idea of jnana yoga is I think knowing that you don't know is probably a good place to start with jnana yoga. And then from there, you know, you do your exploring, your exper- you know, you, you figure out what, what you explore the world, the physical world. You explore your, your psychological world, your, mm. your, your, your consciousness and try to get to know what it is that makes up you. And then you learn, you study others. And by conversing with others, you can also learn from jnana yoga. Mm. I think the Socratic dialectic is a great uh, you know, method of jnana yoga where you mm. talk to people and you discern and you, you know, come together. And that's why, you know, your podcast is so successful and why this, this forum, this medium is so successful because it allows people to, to develop their ideas. And from there you learn about yourself, which is the universe, a part of the universe, just like the trees and the sun and the stars and everything else, like you mentioned. Yeah. There's in jnana yoga, it has a corresponding practice to some degree, I mean, it has many practices, the path of the philosopher, the path of wisdom, the path of the sage, the path of, you know, reading the classical texts uh, on philosophy, on meaning, and trying to apply them to life. Uh, but in uh, Buddhism, there's this specific practice of uh, vipassana, the direct uh, insight. So it's this practice of meditation that's actually, it comes later on. So in the beginning, you just focus on the body, becoming aware of the body. Then you become aware of the breath and you kind of train your mind to be able to be focused on something. But among the highest goals is this Vipassana, which is this direct seeing, this direct perception of your own mind, your own psyche, and 
your own experience of something, you know, beyond even yourself. And there's this idea too. So Jnana, the same roots as, you know, Gnosis. And Gnosis, it is the underpinning of knowledge. But the way we think of knowledge now is not really what Gnosis is. Because Gnosis, as we both have read, is direct experiential wisdom. It's not like, no, it, Gnosis is not like, oh, I know that's a fact. Like Gnosis is, I've experienced something and I know it to be true because like I've experienced it. It's not like a theoretical thing. It's not even something it's that you present, can necessarily- It's a present truth. Exactly. Ever present. You, know, you can recognize truth. it in a book, but you can't really get it from a book because unless while you're reading the book, you have the experience- the only thing that lasts is that experience. So the, this uh, path of jnana yoga and insight meditation is you bring that insight and what happens, right? What happens when you bring like full calm attention and your mind's not scattered and there's not thoughts happening and you just look at things within your own mind, thoughts arising. You have insights that are experiences. They're not, you know, rationalizations of what's happening. You have a direct insight into how does my mind work? How, where, does, where do the thoughts come from? What, where does my suffering come from? What's the root of it? These kind of things you see directly without words. So I think jnana yoga is really the path of you know, the Tao, really. And it's, it's not about accumulating knowledge because mm. knowledge is only as good as you know, what it leads to. Does it lead to an experience of the knowledge? That's the only thing that matters, right? Because you can read like a million books and it could, you could just be... A, you know, it could not change your life at all. So like, that's not jnana yoga because yoga is about union. So what brings unions? Experience, the experience of knowledge, the experience of truth, the experience of what is, whether it's, you know, in the universe, what you're observing or just in your own minds, but not and, through a rational mechanism, not through thought. Right. And that's the key. So now we can, but you know, you could also use the rational mechanism if you, uh, of jnana yoga in the sense that it could inform your decisions that you make for karma yoga. So, you know, Jnana mm-hmm. Yoga is reading, you know, ancient holy texts or scientific studies, whatever it is that's going to inform you on your path of, as a karma yogi, which is the path that you take constantly. Mm-hmm. Not that, I mean, the other ones are definitely there constantly too, but I feel like the predominant one, like you said, why are all the myths that we read about written from the karma yoga perspective? There are elements of bhakti yoga in there. There are elements of Jnana Yoga and all you know, when we get to the hero's journey at the end here to kind of tie it all together, that's kind of the idea is that all of these paths coincide. But once again, the karma yoga path is like your day-to-day actions and jnana yoga can be extremely helpful to informing those actions mm. that you take. And that's there's, the key. There's this understanding that you're, uh, you're hinting at that I think ties it all together is we live through all the paths, right? So jnana yoga is the path of the mind. How can the mind, how can we use the mind to become fulfilled, happy, wise? Everything that corresponds with that. Bhakti yoga is associated with the heart. How can we get our emotions, our feeling in order with reality in acting in a good way to to bring us peace? And then um, karma yoga is the path of, you know, the solar plexus, the will, action, movement, activity, the body the physical, what do you actually do? The practical, pragmatic, how do you bring about a good thing? And really an integrated human 
has all of them functioning. They have the wisdom, they have the compassion and love, but they also have the action to go along with it. Because if you think of it, each of the different paths can be focused on to bring you to insights. But I think the only way to live a, a truly good integrated life at your fullest capacity is to express all of them at, at once in different proportions. Everyone has more of a a bend. Like some people are more towards the heart side. Some people are more towards the mind side. Some people are more towards the action. You don't have to be a, a guru in each of the ways. You're probably going to be, you know, a guru or master in one of the ways if you practice, but you'll be pretty dang good at the other ways and they all work together and they all inform each other. The wisdom informs how the heart works. The heart informs how you act. It's, they're, they're not, they're only separatable in terms of, you know, you're devising a mode of practice for someone to, to, to get somewhere, to get to a better place in their lives. And Absolutely. for some people it's better some time of their life, maybe they need to start with this and that, and it's kind of hard to do everything at once. So it's the path is delineated. Right. But it's, it's not funny. a separate path. It's a path. The path is united. I mean, that's the point of yoga, right? Exactly. And in an example, I asked my students after they read about the yogas, I asked them which yoga did they think they practice the most, you know, to see what they vibe with. And then I also asked them, which one do they think I practice the most? Because I was interested to see what they would say. Mm-hmm. And I would say um, it was a fair split, the two between, uh, I guess, karma and uh, jnana because a lot of them are like nana yoga you're a philosophy teacher like obviously that's what you're doing but then karma yoga they're like but your job is the teacher and you teach and so your jnana yoga has informed you on your karma path so i'm like that's cool i'm glad that they feel that that they sense that because that means that i'm fulfilling my dharma then if they're feeling like oh he's on his karma yoga path right there are a few bhaktis in there because they know that I love philosophy and teaching. So, that, you know, that was there, but it was definitely between those two that they felt like these are your strong suits, mm. you know? And, and, and I think, you know, that's a beautiful thing to see if that's, you know, if you at your job, if your job is based on teaching and you're fulfilling your nana and karma yoga, and there's bhakti a little bit in there because you're passionate. Once again, like you said, I've integrated those three paths um, in my profession. I think that's glorious. You know, that's, that's all we can ask for in our lives. That brings up a really interesting insight. I think one of the reasons why we were drawn to the uh, philosophers like Plato, Socrates, and their kind of images, um, and even Jesus Christ. So obviously the word philosophy, philosophia, love of wisdom. So you already got bhakti in there because there's a love and of wisdom, you got your jnana, you got your knowledge, your gnosis. But what's most interesting about the Socratic the third force, first, yes, you're gonna do it to us. <laughs> yes, I'm gonna do it. So the early philosophers, it was more like a religion. So it was about how do you apply the philosophy. So that's where you get the moral philosophers, and morals are only they only make sense in terms of how do you actually act ethics. You combine those three things together in a in a character like Socrates, who has the, the love of wisdom and the wisdom and the love of others, but also acts in accordance with that. Follows you have the, all parts. You have he all three it. parts fulfilled in one person. And just like course, Jesus. Yeah. And these people are likely historical and also mythical because there's mythologizing that happens around great people who fulfill their paths. 
So there's a historical element and the, but it's all tied together in the, the perfect life, let's say. Right. And that's, that'll be the segue to the final thing here to tie it all together. And I think that was brilliant how you brought it up with the, the idea of what a philosopher is, is that you love the wisdom, jnana, bhakti, and then all that's, of a sudden, well, when the, you do that, you are acting and doing your karma yoga. It's the problem brilliant. these days is like the view of philosophy. Like I remember telling people, so we both majored in philosophy, we went to school of philosophy, if anyone doesn't know. I mean, you probably know after listening to us for a while, but <laughs> like, it's pretty obvious that that's what we like to talk about. But I remember telling people like that, um, you know, I was studying philosophy and people were like, oh, oh, cool. Like as if I said, like I was studying like statistical algebra or something, you know, like something like very abstract and very heady and very, you know, logical. The yeah. idea of philosophy in these days is this very academic thing. You know, they're writing papers and doing arguments. But when you look at the roots of philosophy, roots are, you know, in yogic philosophy, in uh, Greek philosophy, Socrates, Plato, this was a way of life. This was Yes. The Stoics, it was seeking wisdom, love of wisdom, seeking it, applying it, and living a good life. That was all that philosophy mattered for at, in those early stages. And I think that's the key thing to, to bring back. But I'll, I'll let you continue. I just wanted to dispel some notions of what philosophy is because we have very loose definitions of it, obviously. You're right, man. And like you said, we, we because we learned it and we majored in it, that's for us, it's a lifestyle. And others might not realize how accessible it is. You know, it's not this ivory tower uh, pursuit, man. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's ever present. And that's kind of why, you know, I, when I taught my students this, a lot of them at the end of the year, I, I asked them what they got out of the class the most. And surprisingly enough, considering that it was all distance learning for Indian philosophy unit, some of them came out and said they got a lot out of that. And I was like, that's great because I wasn't even physically there, but they still, from my lessons and my lectures, they were able to get something out of it and to learn from it and to impart it on themselves. So that was really a success for me. And it shows that we were taught well by Nicholson, you know, who really, who gave us the good stuff and, and the legit teachings. We didn't learn it from like a third source through like a book or you know, we read books, but we learned it from the, the, the teacher that really was able to put our mindset uh, in the right, in the right angle to get the most from these books. I also do want to mention the physical aspect of yoga because that is a part of this. And maybe it's better to look at that as an outgrowth of karma yoga. Like it's just like, doing your, you know, uh, doing what's right for your body. Um, it's also, it's called Raja or Hatha yoga and Mm. Hatha yoga is why the way I like to look at it because it's, uh, Nicholson was always big on like making a point of Hatha yoga is that it's like doing violence to the body. And it's like, Whoa, why would you want to do that, man? That's not good. You're going to like, you know, hurt yourself there. But that's the idea is like you strength. Once again, we're like, sweating away the impurities right we're trying to act attain that wholeness once more from the things that stand in the way of it and so by doing you know physically straining practices hot yoga sweating at 80 degrees you know doing whatever it is you got to do in order to you know bring bring yourself to physical realization the physical heights of um of feats of strength and whatnot it's important to also have that element of it um, in your life, you have to do right by your body. Your body is the vessel for these three paths. Without your body, without a healthy functioning body, you know, you, you're not going to be a successful, uh, you know, having that holistic, um, you know, uh, mm. result that you're looking for, which is, you know, what you want to do when you're practicing yoga. I so think that's, that's number a key one. understanding of, of yoga, that physical yeah. aspect. So I've, I've read that the earlier views of the actual asanas and the physical aspects of yoga, they're preparations of the body for meditation. 
they make meditation you limber and also enough and mindset enough in your body so that you can actually begin the real practice of meditation, which is just going absolutely. deeper into that. Absolutely. And also not just meditation, Bogdan, but sex. And mm. that's important too. That's the tantric so, tradition. Right. Well, yeah. So that maybe I'm getting a little, <laughs> of course, I got to go off track here. Tantra yoga. <laughs> Next episode. <laughs> True. I mean, you could have a, oh my God, you should get someone in who knows. I mean, I think you've talked about tantra with people in some of your talks, if I'm not mistaken. I, I not feel like really, it's been a part. Not really, unfortunately. No, cool. I'll, I'll have to find somebody who can, who can speak on it. I remember being interested in it like, um, like a it's couple the non-traditional ago. path yeah right but but it's 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 very in my opinion it's very traditional i mean sex is this, it's it's become this you know this taboo thing but it's a yeah. part of who we are so the idea of practicing yoga is that you're opening up energy channels so that when you do have intercourse it becomes this spiritual you know amazing uh life altering experience which is what we're trying to have and that's what the the merging of all of these paths at the end of the day leads you to having a life-altering experience every day of your life. Your life becomes meaningful. Your life becomes worthwhile because you are putting your all into it and you're inspired by everything that you do. And so that's the idea. So you're physically engaged with your life. You're mentally engaged with your life. You are uh, devotionally engaged. Your heart's in it, as they like to say. And um, you show up every day. I feel like karma yoga, a lot of it's showing up, like actually like putting in the effort to wake up and do what you got to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so they all work together. And like you said, you know, if you merge these together, you will be not a perfect being. You'll never be perfect, but you will be absolutely capable of um, overcoming whatever challenges uh, face you in the path of life. And it's inevitable that challenges will face us because the challenges are what make us who we are and give us that strength of character and the, the wisdom that we can then impart to others so that they can live their best life and, you know, follow the paths, the various paths that ultimately lead back to you. Oh, that's so beautiful. I, I, let's, let's end it here. I don't think it get right. any better than this. We'll, we'll <laughs> yeah, have no. you on the, the show for uh, many, many more episodes. Uh, always love talking with you, Eric. So Many thanks, Bogdan. Brother Bogdan, congratulations on becoming a doctor. You know, we always talk about how being a doctor and being a teacher are very, very much overlapping. And it's great that we can do an episode like this where it flows so effortlessly because these paths overlap. And, you know, we're always trying to practice them to the best of our abilities every day, day in, day out. Even if you don't even know you are trying to do that, everyone is practicing these paths. We're mm. all walking this path every day of our lives, whether yeah. or not you're aware of it and becoming aware of it just makes it that much more potent of a medicine that is this mindset, that is this lifestyle. Because your diet and your nutrition, right, your mind state, your how much how well you breathe, your actions towards other people, that's all a part of your your uh, holistic health. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's all just a perspective change, just a little flip in the way we view things, rather than feeling oh, this is happening to me versus this happening for me. Or, oh, like lately the past week, I've been just waking up with the thought of how can I do something good today? How can I actually help someone today? How can I do something fulfilling? Rather than thinking of like, what do I need to get done? Because mm. they're the same thing. Because when you're living that path of the Dharma yoga where your actions actually lead to good for other people, you're a teacher, you're a healer, you're a craftsman, you do this or that, like all your actions lead to good of people. That's the whole point of, any job. I mean, I don't know if there's any job that the whole point of it is to bring suffering on people. 
Not that I'm <laughs> aware you're, of. Well, if you're a weapons dealer, that's why Buddhists would say that's not a good job for karma yoga. That's one that Nicholson would bring <laughs> up, man. I'm not even kidding. He'd be like, no, oh, if you're dealing with weapons and you're a Buddhist and your actions are definitely leading to the suffering of others. Well, okay, so yeah, there there is some career paths like selling, you know, very addictive drugs that destroy people's lives. Like too. your actions, actually your karma yoga would be best to just like, stop doing that actually not to do it with <laughs> devotion, but just don't do it. Um, that's so funny. It's so true. But, but yeah, so all of our, all of our paths have that, uh, that potential depending on how we, how we look at it. Um, and you had an excellent article on uh community natural mental health site that, I've started uh, several months ago. It's going to become kind of the base of the clinic that I start because I am uh, going to be licensed as a naturopathic physician practicing in Oregon, specializing in mental health, specifically how to treat uh, mental health naturally, anxiety, depression, um, different psychiatric issues, other chronic diseases, digestive issues, using herbs, using diet, lifestyle approaches, mindfulness, all these different aspects that really bring health. And that website is holisticpsyche.com, P-S-Y-C-H-E.com. You have an article on there about yoga, very in-depth article. If you guys are interested in learning more about uh, yoga, reading about um, uh, several articles on there about herbs that can help you with mental health issues. And um, also check out uh, ktherbs.com. It's where... uh, my company I founded, Kintaros Therapeutics. I make uh, herbal tinctures, healing extracts for sleep, for mood, for uh, supporting energy, for stress, for love. Uh, we're actually uh, working on a formula for helping people with pain. So these are, we use all organic herbs from uh, local farms in Oregon, put them all in a tincture, which is basically uh, an extract. So all the medicinal components are in there, flavored with honey, delicious. We're at a vendor uh, markets in Silverton every Saturday and Sunday. So I've been selling a lot of tinctures there. A lot of people, we do like taste tests. I do like herbal tarot readings, things like that. Um, but anyway, it's been, a, it's been a great path. It's part of the way that I express the love and devotion and compassion is giving people these things that not only do I love actually making, and I just, I always find herbalism so fascinating. I know you do as well. Um, but actually so that process of making them is beautiful and the research that goes into formulating these things. But the best part is when you actually people use it and they're like, Oh, this actually really helps. And I'm like, you just can't feel any better than that. And let me shamelessly plug this here. Please shamelessly promote you. Okay. Because I mean, you know, we're, we're friends, obviously we've known each other now, but it's, what's great is that we're working together as we, you know, grow on this, these paths in our lives, you know, become, you know, we become much more impactful because now we're in the position to impact others' lives. We're, we're the professionals that are practicing this stuff, right? So your, um, your tea that you made for me, which was the uh, stomach, uh, just like stomach calming tea, let's say, it is, once again, it, it's, it's got, um, it, it doesn't just impact what it was made to do, which is just to, you know, calm a, maybe an upset stomach, maybe a little bit of heartburn, um, it also helps calm you physically. Yeah. So you put some lavender in there, you put some peppermint in there. You know, I'm pretty sure you put chamomile meal in there as well. Yeah, put chamomile and it is just, and probably this thing is too. magical medicine. It is. I mean, I've, I've, you gave me a huge bag of it and I still got it. It's like a year later and it still works just as well. 
Um, it is the most brilliant, awesome. you know, powerful tea I've ever had in my life. Yeah, uh, I'm actually, and, you know, I'm, I'm getting another order of herbs uh, actually later tonight. So I'll, I'll make one for you of the, the fresh stuff because uh, I'm getting a lot of lavender and cameo because I use those for the formulas. Yes. Um, but the place I get from, they have really good chamomile and lavender. Jesus. Uh, like even in the dried form, it's so fragrant and amazing. So um, part of the healing is just getting really good potency herbs. I mean, the best places, you know, from nature, from the wild, fresh picked, you know, fresh dried. Um, but it can get pretty good with some of the dried stuff they make. So, um, so yeah, man, I'm uh, glad that this has been helpful for you. I, I mean, I've had so much benefit from herbs. It's kind of hard to even begin with what they can, what they can help you with. Um, so that's kind of been my focus, uh, herbalism, uh, mental health, spirituality, um, and then also using pharmaceuticals when they're needed, ordering lab tests because uh, naturopathic physicians here in Oregon, we have a pretty big scope of practice. We can uh, do referrals. We can order imaging. We can do a lot of the things that you know primary care uh, focused physicians do. Uh, but we also have the toolbox of using the natural approaches. That's the, the path that I prefer. That's where I start with foundations well, of health like we talked about it's the all-encompassing path bogged and you know you're going to be merging all these yogic paths together in your practice especially mm -hmm. if you got the mental health approach and then you're going to throw in the herbs in there that's your physical that's your hatha yoga that's mm -hmm. your you know your karma yoga is obviously your practice and you're doing it because you love it all of these things have tied in just like my students saw that i was exhibiting these different paths of yoga in me your patients i guarantee you know and i know they already do people who you work with you know they will get the same benefits because you are merging all these paths together. And that's how we have a future right now is if we get everyone as individuals to work together and to, you know, help each other along these paths and to offer something to the world, to make it a better place and to heal people and to make people want to live and pursue their dreams and goals. I have faith, you know, that we will live in this Renaissance, you know, this, this time will become a Renaissance instead of a dystopian uh, you know, uh, a world that maybe is, you know, much more challenging than it needs to be. I Beautiful. think that if we put our heads together, our hearts together, our, you know, our, our dharmic paths together and we help each other, you know, we're going to, we're going to be just fine in this world. And it, it's not that we won't have challenges in this, you know, 21st century, but we have all the tools that we need. Like you said, the tools that you need to create the world that we want for the future. And I, I humbly believe that, uh, you know, if we work together on this and your listeners, you know, are motivated and inspired and reach out to you and you have more of these people on your show, you know, to learn about, let's say sound healing or, you know, other things that we mentioned, yeah. thematics, that's how we're going to really change the game here is that we're going to empower each other to be whatever we need to yeah. be for ourselves and to Perfect. heal and to grow and learn and everything else. That's, that's a good point you bring up. So, uh, if you guys want to get in contact with me, if you're interested in these natural health topics, holistic health, maybe you're a healer, you do yoga, you do massage, anything within the field, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, so the name is Holistic Psyche, but between holistic and psyche, there's the underscore symbol, like the on the ground symbol. I don't know what it's called, I guess, underscore. So Holistic Psyche, you can find me there on uh, Instagram, send me a message. Be like, hey, what's up? Saw saw your show. I'm interested in this and that. I want to talk about this, and I, I'd love to have you on because um, I, I love having conversations about this kind of thing. Because not only is it interesting, but it spreads the word. It gets the message out to more people, so that this form of healing can become more mainstream rather than alternative. I mean, there's no 
reason that, you know, diet, lifestyle, exercise, meditation, you know, mind approaches, spirituality, herbs, like why these things aren't the first line for a lot of these issues. They, they should, you know, everything should work together based on what the person needs. So be sure to reach out. I told you about the websites. You can, you can go back and listen to it. If not, I hope you guys subscribe to the Herbal Hour and uh, contact me if you'd like to be on the show. We're on YouTube, we're on Spotify, we're on iTunes, and we're on a lot of other podcasting mediums that I'm not aware of. <laughs> Stay healthy and whole out there, folks. You got, you got some, you know, we're, we're all in this together. We're going to create a healing community. That's what we're doing. That's what's happening, even if we don't know it. So let's, you know, let's keep it going. I, there I you have, have so it. much faith in you and these listeners. Eric Anderson, the man. <laughs> <laughs> Just a mirror of everyone else, my friend. We're Thank doing you for the being, best we can uh, out here. Thanks for being on the show and uh, the excellent discussion, sir. Anytime. I uh, look forward to the next time to listen and to be on the show as your guest. <laughs>